America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. We've got with us this morning, we will be joined by my good friend, Christopher Calton, uh, who is a professor of history, uh, has his degree from University of Gainesville, and has done a lot of uh, great work on the problems with higher education, both from a historical point of view, as well as from his own experiences within Gainesville. Um, but I, I want to talk, uh, as we started the show on, on some of the, the incentive issues that exist within academic research, because it it's, can be easy to kind of gloss over the importance of these academic journals, of, these, of, of the research component. We can think, you know, a lot of the focus has been on the indoctrination aspect, right, of kids going into universities and then absorbing a bunch of, um, you know, crazy ideas from the professors, um, you know, the role that that has played in some of the, the crazy cultural dynamics of, you know, whether it's on the, the radical gender identification issue, whether it's some of the, the more absurd examples of students pretending they're cats and dogs and things like that, that comes up from time to time. All of those are important in terms of the in terms of the uh, uh, relationship between students and higher higher education. But the research component is a very important deal as well because it's the research that helps guide new new policies. It's the research that guides the edicts has very real consequences in terms of the size of the state, the interactions of the state, the, the perspective of the state. And this interweaving of uh, academic expertise with state power, this is something that really uh, was a major component of the, the 20th century, um, was a major aspect with the rise of the progressive era, um, you know, the, the, the sort of creation of this technocratic class. That is one of the real hallmarks of the modern regime. And of course, the understanding for that, right? You know, the, the argument that has been used is that, well, a government of experts, a government of expertise, a government of skills, a government of, of intellectuals, um, given the importance of good governing, given the importance of laws and the like, well, obviously, we want an expert class. We want, we want enlightened individuals. We want people that specialize in all these various disciplines. That is the key towards creating good policy. Well, for one, we've always seen the extent to which, okay, in, in which these things have, have been captured by industry. Um, but again, this question now of the quality of the research is, is a very big deal. And so talking about higher education and some of its problems is, again, our guest for today, Dr. Christopher Calton. Uh, Chris, how are you doing this morning? Hey, great. So how are you? Do, doing great. Doing great. I'm glad to have you. And we, we're starting off the show talking about uh, some of the, the crisis out there in terms of fraudulent research. We just had an FSU professor canned uh, for some of their research. We've seen major examples with um, uh, uh, Professor Gino in terms of behavioral economics and the like. And I know, you know at Mises.org, you've written a great deal about the higher education problem um, in terms of a variety of different perspectives. And so can we begin there from a historical perspective 
Um, for one, can we can we start by by explaining why higher education matters to society as a whole? Um, even even if you do not have a student, whether you're if you are not in class yourself, um, but then kind of what what do you see as sort of the kernels of the current problems that we have within higher ed? Oh man, that's <laughs> that's a that's a big question. But the <laughs> short answer, I guess, for the hurdles in higher ed is the growth of ideological homogenization in academia. So one thing that I pointed out in one of my uh, Mises Wire articles, which uh, you're referring to, that we talked about previously on another show, is uh, over time, you've always had this kind of like left-wing bias in academia. It's always been disproportionately left of center, and they have self-report studies from places like Stanford does one, for instance, going back to the 70s where they just pull uh, academics and ask them whether they align as far left, moderate left, center, far right, moderate right. And you've always had people, uh, you know, heavily lean to the left. But uh, in the past 20 years, it started to spike up like a hockey stick for people who identify not just as left, but as far left. Uh, they're, they're more ide- which I always find interesting because in these surveys, they don't define what far left or far right means. This is open to interpretation. And the way I think it usually means in practice is we're not so much that we're so extreme in our views, but that we're activists, right? It's this idea of scholar activism, which is becoming more of a problem. And moderates and conservatives have declined to the point where it's it's less than 10% of academics anymore identify as conservatives and closer to 90% identify as Democrats. We have never had anything close to this proportion um, of ideological homogeneity. Uh, in the 80s, we were almost at parity. There was almost the same amount of self-report uh, people on the left or far left as there were on the, the right. And this hom- homogenization isn't just bad because, oh, we don't want people on the left, we need more people on the right. It's that when you have too many people agreeing with each other in these, these um, industries where you know, intellectual disagreement is so much an important part of the kind of production process, which you get in the peer review process, is confirmation bias, right? So if somebody puts out a bad study with bad research, say they falsify data, but they're making an argument that appeals to the um, ideology of their peer reviewers, uh, then they're much more likely to get published with junk science. And we saw this with the very controversial grievance studies, which were a handful of professors who, who, by the way, were on the left, but they were bothered by this problem of confirmation bias uh, uh, eroding the peer review process, that they published a bunch of fake studies to expose this. One of them they published in a feminist journal. They literally just took passages of Mein Kampf and rewrote them in feminist jargon and got it published in a respected journal. And that's just one of their examples. I mean, these were ridiculous studies that never should have been published, but they got numerous of them published in real peer-reviewed journals. Because of this, they were just making up um, Journal titles, they never used any real citations. Uh, it should have been transparent to anybody that didn't have these ideological buyers. This, to me, is the biggest problem in academia today. And overcoming it, I, I don't know how you do that, because the hiring process in academia serves to reinforce this. It's departments hire their own colleagues. Uh, so it kind of has this uh, self-reinforcing mechanism in it. And one, one, one of the most famous studies of all time, um, going back to Stanford, which has come out, uh, come up a couple times now, is the Stanford Prison Experiment. 
um, which is, you know, one of the very few academic studies that I, I think you know, probably the most famous academic study out there. Um, with with research that has has recently come out showing that it was completely fraudulent, um, you know, people say that it needs to be removed from from textbooks and like. But again, it it, it kind of reinforced a certain perspective of what people wanted at the time. I'm um, going to your point there, and so it's fascinating how even some of the most prominent studies are not immune to this this underlying problem. Um, and then interestingly, Florida is has become one of the kind of the tips of the spear in trying to address some of this. I know that that you were a a product of of Gainesville in its own right. Um, and can can you talk a little bit about you know your your own experiences within academia, um, and and how how you know because yeah, it, it's it's easy where you know I, I hear people dismissing at times. Oh well, you know so there, there's some extreme examples out here. And yet, for the majority of the college experience, it's not really the case. Um, from your own perspective, as someone who who has recently completed their PhD within a a, a major university program, are, are some of these concerns overstated, or is that 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 permissive aspect of ideological homogeneity does does it influence is, is its influence a, a broader and and real on all, all sorts of things? Just to give you an example, I do think that some of the, like, the extreme examples that get a lot of media play, especially in, like, you know, the kind of stuff that, like, Rush Limbaugh would promote on his radio program, those usually are extreme examples that don't, you know, they'll have some, like, adjunct professor at Berkeley who, you know, does some test that basically is trying to get students very explicitly to vote a certain way. You do have cases like that. That's not the norm, right? It's usually a little bit more subtle and seemingly, at least superficially, benign. Uh, when you have uh, uh, this bias come out. But, but I'll give you one example. Um, I was talking to uh, a, one of my professors about this, a political science professor um, at U.S., and this is a woman who is a political moderate. She's, she's not far left. She's, uh, I would never consider her, like, biased in the classroom. Like, I, I never felt like I had to worry about, like, what I put in a paper that she was going to hold me accountable for saying something that she disagreed with, right? So this is a very good professor. I liked her a lot. But we were talking about this kind of bias bleeding through in the admissions process, pro, uh, process for graduate students. And she said, well, maybe, you know, it's not political bias. You know, there could be other reasons for this. And she gave me this example of somebody who applied to grad school uh, at, at the University of Florida, a poli-sci department, who wanted to study, like, Israel-Arab relations. And this person seemed to be more pro-Israel. And what she said was, well, we, we, didn't, uh, we rejected this application not because we thought it was problematic that, uh, you know, our faculty disagreed with her, but we do have a lot more faculty that's critical of Israel. And we thought she might not feel comfortable if she were in this department. Well, there are two problems with this. One is that's a roundabout way of admitting that you literally just rejected this, this applicant because they held political views that your faculty disagrees with, right? So that's thing number one. What is that if that, that's not a bias, right? That's a very real thing. But this was coming from somebody who I don't think is not like a far-left wacko. They're not a far-left crook. They're a moderate who never, she never brought her politics into the classroom. She just genuinely is defending her faculty on this like kind of twisted logic that she truly believes, right? She's, she's, not, she's not just giving me a line of BS here. She really believes that the real reason they rejected her was because they were worried about the student feeling uncomfortable. But the second thing that, that crossed my mind with this is, my God, what, you know, what are you doing that would make students feel uncomfortable with disagreeing with you? You know, that's something that you should want to make sure students 
still comfortable in their ability to do, but you're literally rejecting people out of fear that you'll make them feel uncomfortable when they disagree with you. Well, that's how the political bias, I think, manifests, especially when we're talking like in the classroom or in the admissions process or in the hiring process. That's the way it comes about. That's the logic that justifies it. None of these professors are, you know, uh, overtly consciously saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to definitely penalize Republicans. We're not going to hire conservative professors. We're going to reject conservative peer review. Nobody's saying this. That you ask any of them, they will in 100% sincerity say that, no, they don't care about that. They just want to do um, science, and that's all they care about. But the fact is it bleeds through in these ways, and they just wrap it in this kind of twisted logic where they convince themselves that they're not doing anything that reflects that bias that we accuse them of. It's sort of the situation where, when, you know, the, the fishes in water doesn't know if it's wet. It's something that's so saturated within the environment around us that um, it, it can be be very easy to see see the blinders there. Um, you mentioned the issue with hiring and firing professors. Um, that's one of the things I, I think is is interesting with what's going on in Florida is that there have been some recent changes. At least at the the public university dynamic, there's obviously this this distinction between public and private university, where um, you know there have been reforms made to tenure, um, there have been reforms made to hiring practices. In fact, there was a um, the, the the search for the new president at Florida Atlantic University has drawn some ire from Tallahassee uh, because of certain questions in terms of the the application process there and the vetting process that was going on asking some DEI-related questions in terms of filling up those positions. Um, and you know, as, as we've seen kind of with New College in Sarasota, the extent to which there is a very large emphasis being placed on new college leadership, university leadership, with the hope of fixing some of this where there is at least kind of a, a, a state dynamic there. Um, again, whether or not we'll see the fruits of this, this labor going forward within the Florida, but this is still a, a national issue. On the other side of the break, we're going to look at some of the economics of, of higher education and some of the incentive problems there. You are listening to Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. Stay tuned on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Good Money. On this Thursday morning, I am your host, though, Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. We can find more content like you'll find on this show. And we have a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. The Austrian Magazine. It's a beautiful print publication. Good feeling paper in your hand. Full of great economic commentary. And we want to give this to you for free every other month. That's right. Just go to Mises.org slash magazine. Again, that's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. Sign up there and you'll get a free Buy monthly copy of the Austrian magazine for economic commentary. You won't get anywhere else. Looks good on a coffee table and fulfilling every time you read it. You can find that again at Mises.org slash magazine. Someone who subscribes to the Austrian magazine is our guest today, and that is Dr. Christopher Calton, who is a fellow with the Independent Institute and a uh, product of the uh, University of Florida. And we are talking about the higher education problem out there. And we started off by talking about some of the, the ideological capture of higher education, some of the problems out there with research. But obviously, Chris, when higher education comes in the news today, one of the big aspects is the, the economic side of higher education. 
um, with concerns about student loan debt, affordability, uh, the, the political recourse there, obviously the massive student loan uh, bailout that the Biden administration uh, sought to use, u- utilizing a, a, a September 11th uh, executive order for emergencies that got thrown out with the Supreme Court recently. They were continuing battles within that line. But that intersection of where student loans have played a direct role in the current cost of higher education, this is kind of one of the dynamics where on one side, the people that want to talk about the government side fueling the affordability crisis don't really have a solution for dealing with the generational impact that large debt burdens have on young people. And while I understand the sort of mentality of, well, if you've taken a loan, you pay back the loan, there's also the flip side of that where you have very real problems in terms of if people you know, can't have a financial burden that makes it difficult to have a house or start a family. Um, you know, what does a society look like where you have a generation that is put in those sort of economic chains that make that very difficult, I don't think the outcome there is one that economic conservatives pushing that line um, really want to, to deal with. On the other side, those that talk about uh, student loan relief have no interest in kind of dealing with the underlying aspects that fueled the affordability problem in higher education. Um, you've written extensively on this topic, and so can you talk for our listeners um, some of the incentives at play that have led to this broader affordability problem within higher education that uh, leads people paying a whole lot of money for a, uh, a piece of paper that comes with an increasingly large ideological uh, problem as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing, just the affordability problem, uh, there's at least to to the average person, I think some irony when you point this out, uh, but Subsidies, anytime you subsidize something, we expect it to become cheaper. That's the idea behind subsidies is we want to make something cheaper so that we get more of it, artificially cheaper, I should say, through like government funds. Uh, and they usually do this by giving you money that has to be earmarked for a certain um, type of expenditure, right? And that's what student loans are. It's we're going to give you easy access to, to, uh, to loaned money at a young age, by the way, when you're not exactly in a position to make the best decisions. And we're going to give you easy access to this, but you have to put it towards this one product, which is higher education. And so what you're going to do is you're going to increase uh, the demand for that product. And then what happens when demand goes up, right? Basic economics is the price goes up, right? So subsidies, rather than making higher education more affordable, they make it more expensive because they they vastly expand uh, the market for that that service, right? And so that's exactly what happened. Tuition over the past um, you know thirty years has skyrocketed, and we can see that change really kind of marked uh, first in the '90s when the Clinton administration started. Um, having the student, uh, or I'm sorry, having the federal government insert itself in student loans. They didn't nationalize the industry, but they took over a part of it for like low income Americans. And so they started subsidizing student loans then. And then uh, in 2008, 2009, uh, the Obama administration just pretty much completely nationalized uh, the student loan industry. And so what I like to point out to this uh, is the federal government the Department of Education specifically owns 93% of the student loan debt. This is not privately held debt. And the reason I like to point this out is because if you listen to um, 
Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or some of these other uh, Democrat politicians talk about the student loan crisis, uh, they like to use this term predatory lending. And I don't object to this term because I think it is predatory lending. But if it's predatory, then that means there's a predator. And the predator is whoever is lending the money, and the lender is the Department of Education. And their policies to address this predatory lending is to appropriate tens of millions of dollars from the Treasury, the fe- you know, the federal Treasury, to give more money to that predator, right? They want to pay back the loan that the uh, Department of Education owns. Uh, so we're, their, their solution to predatory lending basically is to subsidize the predator. Imagine if we did this with, like, um, child molesters, like, you know, child molesting is so, so much of a problem. We want to appropriate tens of millions of dollars and give it to the child molesters. I mean, that's, that's literally the logic of Elizabeth Warren when she talks about predatory lending to support some kind of student loan um, repayment program. Now, what I've advocated, and this is kind of controversial in libertarian circles, so I am a bit of an iconoclast within my own group here, uh, but I've advocated you, you should just forgive the debt, right? Because there's no uh, ethical objection to a debtor, which would be, I'm sorry, a lender, a creditor, which would be the Department of Education, forgiving debt that they own, right? The objection uh, from an ethical standpoint, I think, is the federal government intervening in private loans, and that's why it's so important for the Elizabeth Warrens of the world to maintain this false narrative that it's private lenders that are responsible for this, and this is facilitated by a lot of these like crony pseudo private organizations that collect the debts, um, which you know are contracted by the federal government. They only exist because of the federal involvement, but they're not strictly speaking, government organizations, so they give that veneer of it being a private system, and a lot of people genuinely believe these are private loans. But if the Department of Education owns the debt, they don't need to appropriate money (laughs) to forgive it. They just can cancel it, right? That is just like a, a, a private creditor for a car loan or something, if they want to, can cancel a debt. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly objectionable about that. But the caveat that I always add is you can't just forgive debt and then continue the lending pro- pro- uh, policy that created the crisis in the first place. You have to end the policy, right? You have to you have to stop the bleeding before you mop up the blood. In other words, right? You know, there's priorities there, and so that's always been my caveat. Yeah, forgive the debt, absolutely. Why does the Department of of Education need more revenue from us? Why do we want to support a program that puts more money in the in the hands of the Department of Education, like the student loan program does? I love cutting off revenue to the federal government, and that's what student loan forgiveness would do. But you got to stop the lending program along with it. And by the way. Last I checked, which was about three years ago, uh, but it was about, it would be about revenue neutral. The Department of Education brings in about $10 billion a year from student loan payments, and they loan out about $10 billion a year. That's not going to last forever uh, because, you know, more and more students are defaulting on their payments. So eventually it will not be revenue neutral. But as of right now, it's roughly revenue neutral if they did that. Right, and that, that reform on with the Department of Education being the the the, the fallback, the 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 great uh, uh, gobbler up of student loan debt. You know, the, the, those came from relatively recent changes made during the Obama administration, which was done in the name of addressing this brewing affordability yeah. problem. And yet, the cost of college has only gone up because of the incentives that you mentioned there. So, this is not something that has always been kind of baked into the cake. In terms of how student loans are handled in in the U.S., this is something that's a really mo- relatively modern foundation um, or modern reform. And one one of the, the the lingering specters of those years. Yeah. And let me add something to that too, because you mentioned um, 
uh, when you introduced the question, you mentioned the generational problem, and that's a really important point, uh, especially for, you know, people like my, my parents' generation. My, my mom's a baby boomer. Um, and, I, you know, I had explained this to her once, is a lot of these parents, the, the baby boomer and Generation X parents, gave very well-meaning advice on, yes, you know, you go to college, it's going to be your, your avenue to upward mobility. And yeah, you might have to take out loans for college, but that's worth it. It's going to have a return. And that advice was true when they were going to college, right? Uh, tuition was much lower. If you did take out loans, uh, they would have been much more modest, they would have been much more manageable, and they would have been from private lenders. Um, and the private lender caveat is very important because uh, private lenders are going to be much more discriminating in who they give loans to, right? So these like gender studies degrees, like there's uh, a private lender is unlikely to give you $90,000 loan for a gender study degree that is not going to equip you to pay that back, right? And so the federal government kind of removes all those, uh, you know, uh, safety checks, essentially, um, from the lender, and they just let students take out reckless loans that they're not going to be paid. And they don't just let them, they encourage it, right? But a lot of, like, the older generation, especially because of these false narratives from, from Elizabeth Warren, they, they genuinely just don't understand how, how serious the crisis is for generation, uh, like millennials and Generation Z. And, you know, the ethos of, yes, you should pay back money. You owe, I agree with that, right? You borrow money, you should pay it back. But it kind of sidesteps the fact that this is like a genuine social crisis when we have an entire generation so saddled with debt to the federal government, who they're already paying taxes to, that they're, they're instead of having a mortgage payment, they have a student loan payment that's about the same size as a mortgage in a lot of areas for a lot of people. Right? So yeah, I think that's a very important point is how recent it is. Right. Yeah. And again, the, the incentives structure problems there. And again, this, this is kind of a classic government boondoggle there where the, 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 the financing aspect being backed by the federal government creates a certain instruct, uh, incentive aspect into where that money is laid out. And again, it, it is precisely those that, the, 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 that, that benefit from adopting the ideological waters of higher education are the biggest benefactors here. And until you can address, and that's kind of one of the one of the, the major issues we have with any sort of major policy dynamic, is that the you know it, trying to simply address the symptom of a problem without striking that root, um, which again kind of goes to to the the extent to which the the, the government has captured the entire industry really of higher education. If you don't strike at that root there, then you're going to continue to deal with offsets of that problem. And, you know, relating to what we talked about in the previous segment with political homogenization, the student loan industry, um, since it's been nationalized by the government, has, has directly contributed to this problem of homogenization because uh, so much of the money for universities is basically funneled indirectly from the federal government. You get a lot of state, um, state government money uh, to state universities, of course, but you also basically get these federal subsidies through, indirectly through the loan program. We're, com- we're coming up to the break there, but thank you for joining us here on Money Talk 1010. Stay tuned to the other side of the break for more. Okay. Welcome back to Good Money on this good morning in Central Florida. I'm your host, though, Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. So we can find more content like this. And on the, the Mises website today, again, we have a variety of, of interesting articles, um, including uh, some, a look at the, the target boycotts, whether they're an act of economic terrorism, uh, which is a fun read, um, some uh, foreign policy aspects and, and media coverage. 
uh, a focus on, on energy policy, which is one of the most important topics of the day, the extent to which uh, heavy-handed government policy, um, trying to, to pick winners and losers in the energy market, um, some of the, the false narratives out there in terms of you know the role that green energy in terms of wind and solar can really play in terms of meeting energy needs. You'll find all of this and much more on Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S.org. And one, uh, to end the show, I want to, to talk about, I always try to bring up a, a little offbeat economic topic and one that I find um, interesting as a sports fan is uh, some of the debates out there right now dealing with the way that running backs are paid in the NFL. We actually have an article on this by uh, Connor Mortel, another uh, Florida product. Um, but sports economics, I think, is one of those, is, is an interesting topic because, for one, it's a lot easier to get people to talk about football than it is to talk about Fed policy for right or, or wrong. I can understand that. Uh, but also the underlying dynamics of economic logic apply just as well in terms of sports economics and team building and all of that as it does with any other aspect of the economy. And they're one of the big uh, NFL debates that you might be hearing on a sports talk show on another part of the radio dial is about how running backs are, are being um, exploited, mistreated, underpaid. The catalyst for that was uh, news earlier this week about certain players, uh, Saquon Barkley and Tony Pollard and uh, uh, Josh Jacobs, who was the rushing leader last year, um, having to settle for franchise tag deals, one-year deals from their teams, um, which is much lower than what uh, running backs kind of of the previous generation, people like uh, players like Adrian Peterson, um, who has... uh, yeah, he hasn't been out of the league that long because he played well late into his career. But um, you know, while other positions within the league have seen their salaries gone up and up as salary inflation has gone up in the size of the salary cap, running backs are now on average paid less than kickers. And so is this an example of market failure or exploitation or is this simply economics at work? And I would argue that Though we are dealing with, obviously, a unionized environment and, and discussions of some of the, the salary restrictions, some of the specific tools, like a, a one-year franchise tag, um, those are rules and, and limitations that are set between kind of that cooperation between ownership and labor unions and, you know, so we're not talking about a, a pure free market in terms of that. Ultimately, this concept of trade-offs of marginal value are still very much at play. And so one of the things that we've seen is, is sports fans and front offices, more importantly, have, have recognized that in terms of the ultimate goal of a sports team, or in this case, an NFL team, which is winning championships, that the extent to which a high-paid running back and the impact that they might make above replacement value um, has not been related to Super Bowl victories. There's various graphics out there uh, highlighting how you know what the the, the the past Super Bowl winners, the 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 salaries of their highest-paid running back. And um, there has been a negative correlation between having a highly played, highly paid running back 
uh, within that mold. You also have this dynamic where, again, returns over replacement value, the extent to which um, you know a, a undrafted free agent uh, like Isaiah Pacheco, who was the, the running back for the Kansas City Chiefs this year, um, how within a, a certain system around them uh, can can produce similar results as a, a much higher paid player. And so what I like about you know, having this, this underlying economic lens is that it can help inform a variety of ways that we look at all sorts of topics. It's not simply the dire and often depressing state of national finance and you know, understanding the, the consequences of government intervention and the impact that it has on our wallets, on the price of the gas pump, um, you know, on the economic stability that we might be passing on to, to future generations. Um, but it can also inform the way that we understand a, a variety of things. This is something that I think the Austrian perspective in particular that looks at this stuff very, very logically, that, that always frames things back to this question of trade-offs, um, always has a, a, an insightful lens to apply to, to these sort of conversations. So that is the mission of the Mises Institute, is to help provide this understanding. And you can find so much more content like this, articles, podcasts, videos, and so much more at Mises.org. I look forward to coming back next Thursday morning here on Money Talk 1010. Until then, this has been Good Money. We'll see you next week. <laughs>